Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm your host, Pamela Hensley, and in season two, I travel to Berlin. Learn what it's like growing up in a divided city, fleeing the country, living here as a Jewish expat. Join me as I speak to winners and contenders of the German Book Prize, the Thomas Mann Prize, the Dublin Literary Award, and the International Booker. Season two of How I Wrote This begins on April 23rd. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, it's Ryan. We just completed our special presentation of Among Equals. I hope you enjoyed that departure from our regular programming. If you did, I encourage you to mosey on over to the Among Equals feed in your favorite podcast app, as we're in the midst of putting out bonus content. There, you can hear longer interviews with the experts that help us put the series together. Learn about Morso, Ojig, Beardy, and the others. All the stuff that we wanted to include, but just couldn't contain the five-part program. Today, as we're in between seasons, we're lending our feed to one of our podcast friends. I was recently a guest on an episode of North of Normal, another podcast series that talks about Canadian film. The host, Andrew, and myself discuss Guy Madden's 2003 feature film, The Saddest Music in the World. I also encourage you to go over to the North of Normal feed, check out other episodes in their catalog, including their ongoing series on the works of David Cronenberg. And don't forget to rate and review. Happy listening. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Cinema and our relationship with film. My name is Andrew Hunter Scully, and today we are discussing the saddest music in the world, released in 2003, directed by Guy Madden, written by Guy Madden and George Toll, based on a screenplay by Kazuro Ishiguro. And to join me, we have Ryan Barnett. Hello, Ryan. How are you doing there? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Talking from Montreal. That's I right. Yeah. Understand yep. correctly. Thank you for being here. This is a first time on the show for you. As we like to say around here, it's good to get new blood in once in a while, just get different conversations going. Kind of had a long streak of kind of relying on my regulars. A lot of ideas had come up, so we had to get through a lot of those before we could get around to doing ours. Well, I appreciate but you uh, having me on. Definitely, no problem. And you reached out to me for this, and that is awesome because you as well are a podcast host. Yes, that's right. 
Yeah, I host um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North. And why don't you let the people know what your show is there? Uh, sure. Um, so Once Upon a, a Time in Hollywood North is a, a narrative podcast. We usually, well, usually we we have uh, taken one topic and covered uh, that topic over several different episodes. And really what it is, it's a um, usually a production history behind uh, Canadian content. So our first season was a six episode plus two bonus episodes about the kids in the hall. So the career of the kids in the hall from their time as uh, at the Rivoli up until doing their, uh, their show on the CBC to doing the the brain candy film. Uh, and our latest uh, season was about the career of David Cronenberg. So it was the, the early years. So everything from um, shivers up to um, where'd we stop uh, the dead ringers, I think is where we, we stopped. So, I will be completely transparent and honest with you. Before you reach out, I had not listened to your show. Yes. But for a very specific reason. You're not alone. I <laughs> Nope. I, I didn't want to seem mean about it. So let me explain here. I know how much work goes into these shows. And whenever I come across a show that we cover similar subject matter, I don't like listening to it because I don't want to take the research. Yes. If that makes any sense. It I makes will total listen. Sense. Obviously, people who do interviews you know, that are creative, that are involved in the film. I'll listen to those. I'll use those all the time. Like when Sarah Pauly was on What the Fuck with Mark Marin, mm-hmm. like I definitely use that for research. But when I know that it's somebody going out there and pulling up information themselves, doing the work, I don't want to listen because I don't want to lift. Because again, I respect how much work goes into this. People see how much research I end up doing on this show with the different sources. They're always relatively surprised, right? Especially if you don't just scour Wikipedia page. Yeah. So... When you reached out, because I'd seen your show pop up a couple of times here and there, and because we do cover very similar subject matter, obviously, we have done episodes on this show about the kids of the hall. Mm-hmm. We have, obviously, the Cronenberg series that I do with Skylar that we've been doing for years. So when you reached out, I decided to give them a listen, and I blew through them. I think I blew through the first two seasons in about five days. Oh, great. I That's loved amazing. it, and it is an absolute relief on my part that we are very different shows. Yes. Like we are very different beasts. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, obviously mine is a lot more loose than yours. Yours sounds amazing. The production is incredible. So if anybody is listening to this and has listened to our episodes on the kids in the hall or our Cronenberg series, definitely give your show a shot. Definitely give it a listen. It is a totally different experience. And like I said, a lot more polished, I'll say it professional sounding, but what blew me away is the recent series that you're doing. Do you want to explain what that is? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to. Um, yeah. So among equals is um, so it's a, we call it a special presentation of once upon a time in Hollywood North because it's, it's kind of to the side of kind of what we do normally. And the focus of that series is it's about the, the legacy and the history of the professional native Indian artists incorporated. So this was a group of seven indigenous artists who um, formed a, a collective in the 1970s, basically to raise, you know, not just their, their, their own profiles, but raise essentially the, the estimation of indigenous art in Canada at that time. So they were, you know, it was uh, in that group, there was Norval Morriso, who, you know, is probably the most famous name to come out of that. Um, and then Daphne Ojig and Alex Janvier, who are, the, those are known as like the big three. And then there's, of course, there's Jackson Beardy, Eddie Kobanis, um, Joseph Sanchez and Carl Ray. Um, so that was the, that was the, um, the group. 
the uh, Winnipeg Free Press called them the Indian Group of Seven. That's kind of like the colloquial name that mm-hmm. they're they're known by. But so yeah, so we're doing a five part series on the on the history of uh, of that group and their importance in Canadian art and in world art. And it's it's not hosted by me. I'm I kind of play the um, what you would say in Quebec the food de, the food de roi. So I'm the kind of the guy that asks the dumb questions during the yeah, yeah, during yeah. the series. And we have a wonderful host, uh, Soleil Lognier, who uh, is our takes us through these stories, and it, it's filled with interviews with um, indigenous uh, curators and fine artists, as well as family members of the of the group, as well as and Joseph Sanchez as well, who is one of two of the last surviving members. So. Uh, he and Alex Jambier are the only ones who are still with us today. And uh, Joseph was a consultant on the on the project and and is a, a voice throughout the series. Yeah, I, I just really wanted to bring it up because obviously you've seen my show list. I'm very familiar with the subject matter that you covered in your first two seasons. Yeah, And this one has totally blown me away. It is a subject matter that unfortunately is a rather large blindside to me. I'm not a dummy when it comes to Canadian art, but... Yeah. The amount of detail and the light that you're showing and giving the voices there, which most even like the average art fan like myself just don't have those stories and that information. So I just wanted to say great job. I'm absolutely loving it. And again, anybody who might be listening to this episode, definitely give that series a shot because I'm definitely glad. Not least of all, I got to meet you, but it forced me (laughs) to listen to your show, which I really enjoyed. And then this amazing series that you're currently doing there. Oh, I really appreciate that because because yeah, it's it's the result of about a year of work, and yeah, for us, it's a it's a super important topic, and you know, we've been putting out on the Once Upon a Time feed, but it also has its own feed. So if you want to find it, it's just called Among Equals. Uh, It's basically anywhere you can get a podcast. So yes, and if you're a teacher out there um, who's listening to this and you're interested in incorporating it into any sort of class lesson. We actually have learning tools and listening guides available on uh, on uh, actually in the show notes. So you can download uh, ways that will allow you to incorporate this into your class lessons. That's really great to know. I have had a yeah. couple of teachers reach out that do listen to the show. So maybe that's something that might be of aid to them. Now, awesome. this is everything you've put out so far with the show, both series and this side one that you refer to. It's under the banner of Knockabout Media. That's a production company. That's right. Yes, that's my production company. That is your production company. Okay. I wanted to make sure in case people wanted to look into that. And the Mm -hmm. big question I have for you, because I have my own story of why I wanted to start covering Canadian film in this show. Why tackle that subject matter, especially with the effort that you put in? Like, obviously, it would be something you're passionate about, but what made you land on it? Yeah, well, it was... I think there's a couple of things there. There's a, there was a, this genre of podcast that I really liked listening to, which was this narrative podcast that was multi-part. So there was one thing of, okay, I, I think I want to do a podcast, but I think I want to do something that's a little bit more research-based and, and tells a story over several episodes. Before starting Knockabout, I, I worked for an organization uh, doing, as a producer, doing long form and short form history projects. Um, one of the things we produced was the heritage minutes. So I come out oh. of this. Yeah. So I come out of this, um, this uh, work history of, of kind of taking these big topics and, and boiling them down for kind of public consumption. So I wanted to do something that I felt was within my skill set. And then the reason I landed on Canadian film is just, I feel like no one was really doing that with Canadian film. I mean, there, there were shows in which people were, um, you know, talking about movies, but they would, you know, shows like yours, uh, where you you talk about a movie, but it's within the confines of one episode, which, you know, is is its own thing and is great. But for me, I wanted to make it more of like a drama, 
Um, yeah. Like, and you know, and I try to end each uh, episode on like a, on a cliffhanger, like what's going to happen next. So that's, that was really where it started. And, and I initially had pitched it to the CBC as the series. Cause they had in the early days of the pandemic, they had a, like a digital fund or something where they were asking for pitches for, for digital projects and it didn't get picked up, but I was just like, Oh, you know, I've done, I've done this kind of initial pitch work. So I think I might be able to make something of this, but that first season was really slow going for me. Uh, it took a, it took a long time to write. Um, and Cronenberg similarly took a long time to write, but, uh, but yeah, that's really, that's really where it came from. Well, it sounds great. It, it really did blow me away because I really didn't quite know what to expect when I started listening to it. Yeah. I was just like, oh, wow, wow, this sounds really, really good. Uh, the only other thing that I'll note about your show, because obviously mm-hmm. we do have a topic we need to get to. Yeah. Uh, who does the voices? <laughs> because I'll explain yeah. this really quickly about your show. Not only is it just you talking at the audience, but you have these sort of little vignettes. Yeah. Like these sort of little side scenes of instead of just quoting what the actors are saying yourself, you have mm-hmm. an actor doing... His Kevin McDonald is fought on, let me tell you, but you're reciting the lines, you know, so yeah. that's that's kind of the way that it's played with. And I was just really curious about who does that, because uh, some of them are really, really good. All of the male voices are uh, my older brother, Matt. Okay. Uh, so, so he, yeah, I, I mean, unless I feel like it sounds like he's talking to himself and I might put my own voice in there. Uh, it's, mm. it's literally my brother. Um, and I, the way I thanked him, um, for doing all that work in season one, cause his Kevin McDonald is amazing is I got him a cameo uh, from Kevin McDonald. Oh, <laughs> was, wow. <laughs> yeah. It was my thanks to him. And he said it was like the best thing anyone's ever given to him. So <laughs> that's amazing. Wait. Well, Pass yeah. on that. I think his David Cronenberg is better than my impression. <laughs> well, there's David Cronenberg. What did I say to him when I started? I said, you know, would you mind doing season two as well? And by the way, you're going to have to do Dino De Laurentiis. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but no, he's been a really good sport. I can I can fire him over a script and he'll have uh, he'll have the uh, recordings for me in a, in a day or two. And, you know, he, it's it's been amazing because he's yeah he's just he's really good with voices for for some reason <laughs> well pass on our compliments from here i will and apparently the next series that you're working on you have the side one right now but the next one is going to be on john candy that's right yeah which i'm looking forward to because obviously i grew up with john candy yeah uh watching him from a very early age on sctv that's where i first saw him but aside from individual projects here and there because he didn't do a lot of canadian film work Mm-hmm. My research has not taken me too much into the realm of John Candy. So I'm hoping that there will be a lot more surprises for me. Like I'm really hoping that it'll be as eye-opening to me as this side series that you're doing. Yeah, I hope so. It's funny when you, t- when you talk about that whole um, not consuming other podcasts that, that kind of tread on the same material. Um, I had that with, with the kids in the hall. Cause I was putting out the podcast the same time that documentary came out. And I was like, I can't watch the, watch the documentary. Yeah. I can't watch the documentary, even if it's just cause I got something wrong. And I was really happy when I watched the documentary because I felt like they actually complemented each other really well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping for you as a listener, like, I hope, you know, what you learn about John Candy is, is exciting, but yeah, it's, it's the next, it will be the next one. I, I'm excited about the prospects of it because I was just at, um, a uh, showing of Home Alone at the at the Place des Halles here in Montreal, where they had a live orchestra doing the oh, wow. John Williams score. And when John Candy came on the screen, the crowd cheered. It was just the spontaneous mm-hmm. cheering. I was like, oh, like people, yeah. There's this like 
this collective warmth towards him in the, in this country. And I feel like we, we miss him and we're reminded, you know, around Thanksgiving and around Christmas, how much we miss John Candy um, because we have planes, trains, and, and then obviously home alone that, that are on TV all the time during those pockets of the year. So I'm hoping people will come back to the show and, and take in the John Candy episodes. I'm not sure how many, how many episodes it will be. It will be at least five. Um, I've always planned to do five and I always go over five. So we'll see, but uh, there'll be at least five episodes in the new year on John Candy. Uh, when that airs, you should come back on the show. So I can remind my listeners to go and check out that it's actually available. I'd love to. Okay. So on to the topic at hand, Guy Madden. Mm-hmm. Now, we had typically when somebody reaches out, especially if I don't know them, like it's one thing when I hang out with somebody on a regular basis and we over beer, we can be like spitballing ideas for like future projects and stuff like that. Uh, these sort of situations where somebody reaches out or I reach out to them and it's more of like a cold contact situation. There's a back and forth. Usually the person who got in contact with me has a list of films and I kind of fire back with my ideas and we go back and forth and we whittled it down to the saddest music in the world which I was super happy to do. We haven't done any Guy Madden on the show for ages. I think the last one that we did, well, we did my Winnipeg quite a while ago. And then we did a short episode, like a episode of shorts, like short Canadian films. And we did the heart of the world because that is one of my, that's my favorite thing Guy Madden has ever made. So I just wanted an excuse to talk about that. So we paired it up with a couple of other short films, things that we felt couldn't take up an entire episode necessarily. So we finally settled on that. Now, before we get to the saddest music in the world, though, mm-hmm. what is your relationship with Guy Madden? What? Oh, what is my relationship? Um, I think, I think my relationship actually—it's funny. There's there's a few, there's a few ways in which I've intersected with Guy Madden in my life. So, I think the first one was the saddest music in the world, and and I have this vague memory of seeing it reviewed on Ebert and Roper. Uh, which is something you know. Gr- uh, growing up, Siskel and Ebert were huge to me. I think mm-hmm. listening to listening to to Once Upon a Time, I think you'll see how important Siskel and yeah. Ebert are to me because they're in like every episode. <laughs> um, so I have a I have this. That was my first kind of introduction to him, and I just remember the review and remembering seeing the scenes and the beer legs and all that, and and thinking this is fascinating because at the time I was in university, and I, I and I'm a I'm a big fan of um, silent film. I'm a big okay silent film guy. Um, so seeing that someone was making something in that aesthetic was really interesting to me. So that set me on kind of a guy Madden dig. And then in 2013, we were doing a, a podcast project and I had the opportunity to interview him while he was doing his seances project here in Montreal. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I've had the opportunity to, to interview him and he's great, super charming guy, loves to talk, loves to talk about movies and is just a great interview. And then more recently, um, my wife, who's a, a filmmaker, uh, she had gotten a grant. And with that grant, she that grant was was essentially going to set her up with a mentor. But the mentor was hers to choose. And and her choice was Guy Madden. And Guy Madden uh, essentially mentored her for a year in wow. the making of a film of hers. Um, so we've intersected a, a, a few times in these really, you know, tangent, tangential ways. Can I say that? But I come from I come to him as a fan. I come to him as a fan and and a, and an equal admirer of the work he admires and and tries to emulate and and basically absorbs and puts back out into his films. And this is one of my favorite films of his. Yeah, this was really great for me because it's a Madden that I hadn't revisited for a very long time. Yeah, I as well am a pretty big guy Madden fan. I can't quite remember which my first one was. It might have been saddest actually, and I might have done what you did, which is jump back 
mm-hmm. after that. But then obviously after that, whenever I could see anything in the theater, like my Winnipeg or anything like that, I would. Now, we're not going to do a deep dive into the background of Guy Madden. I tend to say that if it's possible in the future, we'll do their first film. I just kind of like that balance. But right, if anybody yeah. listening, any of our non-Canadian or people that aren't familiar with Guy Madden, just really quickly, born in 1956 in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Guy Madden and Winnipeg are basically one and the same at this point. Went to school, I believe, for economics originally, but then started hanging out with the sort of local film scene, film clubs, and then finally transitioned into film. Now, you as a Guy Madden fan, why mm. don't you describe his style that you refer to that you really liked? Oh, sure. Um, so he's a an expressionistic filmmaker um some people kind of describe his films of like as like fever dreams um and they're really rooted in this kind of silent film aesthetic so if you you know if you watch some a film like um like Murnau's films or um Carl Dreyer's films he's really kind of pulling from these inspirations so things are typically in black and white they're typically shot on either uh eight millimeter or on 16 millimeter film so they're they're grainy and they have that kind of um, older film stock quality they could be quite beaten up and then also they have this um that quality that nitrate film used to have too where 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 it almost like glows um like the, there's almost like a halo around the characters mm. um this this bright kind of halo around them and then his editing style nothing's really edited to continuity it's more edited for um, pace and feeling and then i think he also claims uh, douglas cirque is a is a influence of his so you know it's a lot of melodrama so there's a lot of comedy mm-hmm. a lot of really like satire and comedy but a lot of melodrama involved in his work as well i really like speaking of our buddy raj roger ebert mm-hmm. i as well visited his review of this film off of his website i yeah. i just like this as a summation of guy madden's films old film from an alternate timeline satirical nostalgia for a past that never existed that sounds about right yeah so leave it to roger ebert <laughs> and Randomly, this was not planned. I had a very interesting experience a couple of weeks ago here. The Carbon Arc Cinema nearby was doing a screening of Archangel, his second film. Now, when it popped up, tickets go really quickly, and I don't like going to the movie theater by myself. Mm-hmm. So I just grabbed two tickets, right? I was like, I'll find somebody to go with me. And my friend Colin, who's been on the show quite a few times, just reached out being like, hey, dude, what are you doing this weekend? I'm like, well, I got this extra ticket to this guy Madden film. You want to go? And he's like, sure. And of course, we go to sit down because we meet up at the theater. And I'm like, so have you seen any guy Madden before? He's like, I have no idea who he is. Oh, right. and I'm like, this is going to be great. <laughs> this is going to be really, really interesting. The yeah. post conversation that we're going to have, because when he comes on the show, we tend to do like the 70s tax shelter era schlockier stuff. Right. That's more yeah. his wheelhouse of what he likes. Right. So that was really interesting. Just seeing Guy Madden. We've lived with Guy Madden for so long. You kind of take for granted how not impenetrable but how obscure he can be as an experience if you aren't used to him like what was the other thing roger ebert used to say that this guy madden film is unlike anything you've ever seen unless you've seen a guy madden film before yes yeah i remember that from the root yeah yeah yeah. i think is what he would say yeah but anyways i wanted to share that because that was really interesting experience there and you know we were talking afterwards and i was kind of explaining how archangel is you know his second film and it's a little bit more impenetrable than some of his later stuff, depending on what film you're talking about. Uh, but we decided for our next movie night, I'm going to make him watch my Winnipeg because that's by far and away his most accessible 
film in terms of just a lay person watching, but he he's seeing guys weirder side. So he'll understand the sort of otter elements of my Winnipeg. Anyways, I wanted to touch upon that. That was a really cool experience to see that film projected because I'd never seen that one before. Yeah, it must be touring now because it's playing tomorrow night at um, the Cinema Public here. So I just know I just noticed that in, in some yeah. research today. So um, so that's cool that it, it seems to be touring and and uh, people can see it. Now, out of all of his films, is mm-hmm. it just because it's your favorite? That's why you decided on Status? We usually like to get an idea of like, why why this particular film? I think I would have done, um, I think I would have done My Winnipeg if I were to pick a, a favorite film of, of his. But this film being kind of the first introduction, it also feels like his, birth, his first big swing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's an interesting film to talk about. I think his his relationship with Isabella Rossellini is interesting. I think she's an interesting figure to talk about. And and like I said, it was the first it was the first one I I saw, um, and it was the one that put that name in my head. Who that's been there since two thousand what two thousand three is that when this film came out? Yeah, it was. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, so I thought it was the perfect one, and it was in terms of looking at what you've covered on the show, you hadn't covered it. So I was like, you know, of the three or four titles I gave you, I was just as happy to do this one as any of the other ones. Not to put you on the spot, but it is typical of the guest to explain for the audience what is saddest oh music in the world. <laughs> That's why I leave it up to the <laughs> Skylar and I hand back and forth for the Cronenbergs. <laughs> okay, so it's the story of a family. <laughs> There's one uh, is a brother who's a um, failed Broadway impresario who's come back to Winnipeg kind of with his tail between his legs, but he's eager to get back uh there back to uh, new york and um there's a beer baroness is that what you call her a beer uh what do they call her anyway I, be- uh, I believe they refer to her as a beer baroness yeah yeah okay beer baroness played by isabella rossellini who has decided to put on this contest um for to find the saddest music in the world so people um representatives from countries all around come to um to basically play their music and the winner will get a certain amount of money. And this kind of cad played by Mark McKinney, who is this failed Broadway impresario, uh, decides he's going to enter in on behalf of America and he's going to win this contest. But of course, um, the other person that becomes his main rival in this contest is his brother who has returned and is going to be uh, representing, I think, Serbia. And, also, the the hook too is is that um, Mark McKinney's character is now paired up with the uh, former wife of his brother. Did I cover enough of it? <laughs> as good of a swing as you can possibly do. Thank you very much, man. And hilarity ensues. <laughs> you know, and typical guy Madden themes of betrayal and affairs and. It's not technically, I guess, incest in this film, but that's the thing Guy Madden likes to go to once in a while. Yeah. But if anybody thinks that sounds heavy, it's a Guy Madden film. So, of course, it's really, really funny. It was so interesting during the Archangel screening, hearing the audience react to the film. And it's I call it cascading laughter. You'd have this thing where one person would kind of chuckle and find something funny, yeah. and you'd gradually hear across the theater people either thinking, oh, that is okay to laugh, or, oh, I sometimes it almost seems like a kid that feels like they're missing out. So there's that fake laughing. And once I pointed out to my friend Colin, he couldn't miss it. He's like, it was so funny. That one is an incest story, isn't it? That one is. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Okay. So as typical with this show, we're just going to go into a really brief background of this particular project itself. 
to note, this is Guy Madden's seventh feature film. He was quite prolific in the 90s leading up to this film, especially for independent Canadian films. Just not cranking them out, but that's a lot for a Canadian filmmaker. So as we said in the intro, it is based on a screenplay by Kazuo Ishiguro, the acclaimed novelist. He wrote the screenplay in the early 80s before becoming a novelist. Two of his novels have been adapted into films that he both wrote the screenplay for. Uh, the Remains of the Day, starring Anthony Hopkins, which is a movie that I absolutely love and I should really go back to. It's been too long since I've seen it and Never Let Me Go. And later he wrote the screenplay for Living, based on the movie Ikiru by Akira Kurosawa. That was a movie that I was a little bit suspect of because why remake Ikiru? It's one of the mm -hmm. greatest films ever made, but I was pleasantly surprised by it, just to mm. throw my two cents in there. Uh, the fact that Ishiguro wrote the screenplay and the fact that it starred Bill Nye kind of swung me to the side of giving it a shot. So the original script was set in London and the then present day of the 80s when the script was written. Madden says he was down on it at first for those reasons, though the premise of the saddest music contest was strong. So he got together with his longtime early collaborator, George Toll, to work on the screenplay. Just to really quickly note on their relationship and their collaborations, the plot is mainly Madden who comes up with it. They bounce ideas back and forth. And in this time period, it was George Toll who would kind of do the dialogue, essentially. So that in those early films, that Madden-esque dialogue that people refer to is a lot of the time George Toll. Like he's mm. putting the words up on screen there. And he, he, was a, he was a professor of Madden's at one time, wasn't it? Is that my remembering the the correct guy i believe so yeah he ended up collaborating with you know obviously other students and teachers across the board but i think mm -hmm. you are correct there yeah. yeah so they completely rewrote the screenplay essentially keeping the title the premise and the contest at the center they moved the setting to winnipeg in a time period madden was more comfortable with the 1930s otherwise known as the great depression that madden thought worked better for the premise and also the themes of the plot and also the term Great Depression can be a double meaning in this instance. Inspired at the time specifically by corporate and government schemes to commercialize the suffering in Eastern Europe. Madden noted it was the first time he made a film that wasn't based on his own obsessions. It shot over 24 days in the abandoned Dominion Bridge factory for an estimated $3.8 million. Now condemned to note it is also where he shot the heart of the world that we brought up before. Mm. Now, one thing I have to get out of the way about Madden, especially doing research for this, he is, and I didn't know that you knew him, so it'll be interesting your take on this. I don't, uh, again, I've, I've, glancing, glancing encounters. Of course, yeah. <laughs> but still, it's something that I didn't know. Yeah. When I'm doing research on Madden, the one thing that you have to be aware of, especially when he's doing interviews, he has this aspect that he really likes fibbing. Hmm. sort of exaggerating situations and kind of mythologizing things. So there's yeah, some facts that I had my, to... I've written in my notes, fabulous. <laughs> that, that's probably a better way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> there are some stories that I won't repeat here about the background of this film that I have omitted because I really question whether or not Guy Madden is telling the truth about that aspect, right? So if you go out there and read interviews from around this time, there are some really funny anecdotes about the making of this film that I didn't feel comfortable repeating. Because either it's wrong or I'm stealing his material, right? Right, right, right. So this is one of the facts that, you know, you got to keep this in mind. He was told that the factory was insulated and heated where they were filming. This turned out not to be the case. During the filming was what Madden referred to as the biggest cold snap in Winnipeg history 
claiming the temperatures would get sometimes get as low as minus 40 degrees Celsius, which we can talk about when we talk about the actual film itself. Things that you can notice, uh, he noted that it caused discomfort on the set, but had perks like they could use real snow and even have a frozen pond on set. Right. One thing Mark McKinney said that I really liked is that he said that one of the benefits of the cold weather is that there were no third takes because your lips would be frozen. <laughs> so it really kind of kept right. things moving at a quick pace and <laughs> kept people from being too precious about things, shall we say. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a short one for this one. Uh, not that much out there. Well, if you're it, if you're cutting all the bull all the all the bullshit, sure. <laughs> well, we'll touch on some of the other background things we'll touch upon in terms of the okay. cast and stuff like sure, that. Sure. <laughs> well, this came up also a lot in my Winnipeg, right? I always say after I saw my Winnipeg in the theater, it was before I even had a smartphone. The first thing I did is that I went straight home. I didn't go out anywhere. I went straight home and went onto Wikipedia and Google to yeah. fact check everything that he claims about Winnipeg in that movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, shall we move on to the cast? Sure, yeah. We have Mark McKinney. Obviously, we were both pretty big Kids in the Hall fans. I was quite excited that he was in this, playing Chester Kent, the failed Broadway producer, as you mentioned. Obviously, he was in the Kids in the Hall, both the troupe and the television show that ran from 88 to 95. To note on this show, we have talked about Mark McKinney when we did the documentary you brought up, Comedy Punks. We did do an episode on Brain Candy. And though it's not Mark McKinney, we did do an episode on The Wrong Guy. That was something a friend of mine really wanted to talk about. Just to talk about his career leading up to this point, after Kids in the Hall, he was in Saturday Night Live between 1995 and 1997. If you look down his filmography, he's in a lot of bit parts in comedies, a lot of the shitty Saturday Night Live films that were coming out at the time. So movies like A Night in the Roxbury and Superstar, and he also has a bit part in the movie Spice World, the Spice Girls movie. Really? Okay. Yeah, take a look at his filmography. You could really see how much of an outlier this role is, right? And right. kind of a really different thing for him to kind of show his talents. And we wanted to note, because we love the show here on North of Normal, and we have covered it. He was on Slings and Arrows from 2003 to 2006. And most recently, most people, especially outside of Canada, probably known for Superstore from 2015 to 2011. He's always a fascinating interview. Always, always a fascinating interview. I'm, I'm really glad that we've done slings and arrows because there's now a slings and arrows podcast where they're going through and interviewing the cast members. And there's an episode with him. Just always a delight out of all the kids. I think he would be the most personal, like the one I'd want to meet and just kind of sit down and have a conversation with. Mm. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Anything you I, want to say about Mark McKinney? And no, this? I just, I mean, talking about where he was coming from uh, for me. Yeah. I love the kids in the hall for me. I agreed with, uh, with, Lauren Michaels that they were the future of comedy and then after that um that show ended uh it was really hard uh watching him on SNL yeah <laughs> I watching the audience just not react to the chicken lady yes yes seeing the one time he tried the chicken lady just dying dying on the vine love slings and arrows uh was am, am happy to see him do anything of, of quality uh superstar is a show um I, I took a little uh, writing uh, break from the house. My my wife got me a um, Airbnb for a little while, and I was just away from the house to write. And um, between my my writing sessions to kind of recharge, I I caught up with uh, Superstore, and I just love to see him in anything anything that's good. And and again, for me, catching up with this on uh, Status Music in the World on Ebert, it was obviously it was Mark McKinney that made me go, oh, 
Mark McKinney's in something. And that's what drew my attention to, yeah. to this film in the first place. Interesting. And we will move on to Isabel Rossellini, otherwise known in this film as Lady Helen Port Hunting. Now, Isabella Rossellini, huge career. We can only scratch the surface and not do her career any justice at all. But obviously, the child of Roberto Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman. She is a former model who had been acting for quite a while by this point, most notably in where I first saw her in Blue Velvet in 1986, a movie that I saw way too young. Neighbor at the Cottage should not be showing a 10-year-old Blue Velvet, even though it is really, really good. But it did introduce me to David Lynch at a really young age. So there you go. Uh, and the only other role that I want to kind of call out here, because I absolutely love the movie, is that she does the voice of the grandmother shell in Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. That came out right. a couple of years ago, peak pandemic. That was one of my favorite movies of that year. It is absolutely delightful, and I've made so many people watch it. So obviously, she is still active. Now, her involvement in the film is a little bit interesting. The story of how Guy Madden approached her is one of the interesting stories to look up because it is obviously fake and not a real story. <laughs> but uh, it was actually George Tolles who wanted to specifically write a part for Isabella Rossellini in this film because, as Guy Madden said, we had never really worked with a movie star before. And I guess George Toll was a really big fan and Isabella Rossellini is a very adventurous actor and always has been looking back at Blue Velvet as an example. The story that I came across that I thought was really funny, and I think you might like. So Guy Madden was really surprised that he got a message from Rosalini when she agreed to be in the film, that she was going to come up a month early and wanted to meet with Guy Madden. And Guy Madden claims that that is because she was probably a little bit suspect about the overall respectability of the film. Like, not in terms of, like, risque content, but the quality of the content. And who is this guy up in Canada that is trying to get me up here for this. One thing Madden said that I thought was really funny is that they just ended up sitting on his couch watching old movies for the entire month. And she saw Madden's love for old films and what he had been working on and was all on board at that point. I just think it's really funny. Isabella Rossellini sitting on Guy Madden's couch for a month in Winnipeg in winter is just one of the funniest visual things that I can think of really especially if you've seen where guy madden lives or lived in what does he he's still in winnipeg right i believe so yeah i know he I, taught I, in the states for a while but yeah. i also believe he I, I don't know if this is contemporaneous for when as rossellini would have been there but i also believe he lived in a house that once belonged to his mother as well so it, uh, yeah. you imagine you imagine that 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 uh, couch might be covered in plastic or something or <laughs> And it is important to note that they would continue to collaborate after this film through the years, including the short My Dad is 100 Years Old and Guy Madden's feature Keyhole. So they've had a long working relationship after this. For me, uh, my first introduction to her was uh, Death Becomes Her, um, okay. where she plays that kind of um, sorceress. But uh, she's she's fantastic. I love her mother. I love her father's work. Mm -hmm. I love I love when somebody is in a place in, in their like in themselves, but also in like a probably a financial place too, where they can make choices like this. I always uh, I always talk about uh, Daniel Radcliffe as someone who has more money than God. So he just makes really interesting choices, um, you know, and I feel like she's she's this very you know classy European woman that kind of grew up in this in this social strata that she can go, you know what, I want to do an interesting movie in Winnipeg. 
uh, this winter. I want to do this. I want to do that. And she continues to do really interesting work. And I think she's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic in this film. Yeah, it's funny in regards to Daniel Radcliffe. And this <laughs> pertains to this. Did you think he'd be coming I, up? <laughs> I can't remember. I'm not a Harry Potter guy, so it's always surprising. But I can't remember who originally referred to it as this, but they were referring to Daniel Radcliffe and they would refer that they had fuck off money. So whenever somebody like Isabella Rossellini comes up, the first thing that pops to mind is like, oh, yeah, she had fuck off money. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like that's <laughs> the term that's now baked in my head. Yeah. Next year, we have Maria de Medeiros as Narcissa. Most people probably know her from Pulp Fiction. That is definitely where I mainly know her from. Uh, Portuguese actor, poet slash musician. Madden said that he had a friend who was Portuguese and all Portuguese people know each other. So he just got her number off of him. Again, you can't believe everything that guy Madden says Madden did want her for the part. He had seen her in other roles and thought that she would be perfect. She is the one that I feel the most sorry for because with the aforementioned climate on set, she was by far and away the most uncomfortable. She was not used to that and apparently just seemed miserable the entire set when she was off screen. Uh, it's interesting. I don't know if you've listened to the film commentary, but guy Madden will point out with some of her scenes that they would go to a nearby office building, especially when she had less clothes on. And they would have to do like an impromptu set in some other place just to kind of right. keep her happy. She's really great in her role. I mean, we will probably be coming back uh, in terms of the cast. We'll really quickly go through this playing Fyodor Kent, otherwise known as Chester Kent's father is David Fox. The character is referred to as a former lieutenant from the great war. He is a noted theater actor, but in terms of, Things that people have actually seen off of the stage. He had a long-running role in Road to Avonlea as a school teacher, Clive Pettibone. And he was nominated for Genie for a movie that I really want to do on this show called When Night is Falling. We have touched upon that in our other episode of Patricia Rosema, the director of both films for I've Heard the Mermaid Singing. So we do talk, talk a little bit about When Night is Falling is there because we do go into Rosema's career a bit. But I was surprised. I didn't put two and two together that they were the same person. So I just wanted to note that because that's a movie that I really like and really want to do on the show. And then we have Ross McMillian as Roderick Kent, Winnipeg theater actor and had collaborated with Madden before, specifically Careful, which is probably my favorite Guy Madden film, if I'm going to be completely honest with you, and Twilight of the Ice Nymphs. So th that's our main cast that you mentioned in your preamble. No, I, I thank you for telling me where I know David Fox from uh okay because he's so familiar so familiar and now it makes sense that he's somewhere in my lizard brain of having watched road to, being forced to watch road to heavenly every sunday um and then um uh what was the name of the the actor that does uh who's the brother ross mcmillan he's another really great actor that i that i wish i'd seen him in more things um i think he's really good in this film yeah he's really great and i watched it a couple of times for this recording and Weirdly, I really appreciated it more the second time, mm -hmm. you know, when you really start paying attention to the sort of subtleties of the performances. We'll really quickly go behind the camera because Guy Madden's films are so unique looking and there are just some interesting people. Production designer Matthew Davis, he has a crazy IMDb list, which includes a recent film that we've covered, Take This Waltz. And to note, recently the TV show Gen V, if you're into the boys at all. But obviously the production design on any Madden film is going to be off the hook. And we also have to mention the art director is Regine Labierre. Costuming, which is a key factor of any Madden film as well, is Meg McNillan. The score is by Christopher Derrick, who most 
notably was in the band Free Design back in the 60s. Not a band I was familiar with, but apparently they were quite influential. But later on in life does the scores for a lot of Canadian productions, TV and film. I really want to point out the cinematographer Luc Montpellier because he has come out a couple of times on the show because he is the cinematographer for all of Sarah Pauli's films. And I have been gradually going through that with my frequent guest, Melissa, which has been great. So I've really gotten a bigger sense of who Luc Montpellier is as a Canadian artist. Edited by David Warnsby. One thing that I did find really interesting about this is that none of these people have worked with Guy Madden before or since, which is really kind of rare with Canadian cinema. Like I said, with Sarah Pauli, with Luc Montpellier, or David Cronenberg, you know, David's crew. It is pretty common for people to go back to the same people, especially since the Canadian film industry is so small. I can't really speak as to why. I just thought that was interesting, right? Like pretty much his editor and his art director are different, even though there is a sort of unified Madden world look. I find it interesting that those key roles change all the time. And just something I just kind of noticed and learned while I was doing research for this episode that I never noted before. I wonder if it has to do with um, with means. Um, I don't know. I Like you, you mentioned before, he had a $3.5 million budget for this. I don't know if he's had that since. I can't remember. The only one that might have is my Winnipeg. And I can't yeah. remember what the budget for that was for. But I definitely know outside of that, this is the most money he yeah. ever had for a film for sure. Especially leading up to this. All right. Well, let's go into the film itself. I'm a production designer, so I want to start off with the sets. Uh, the typical Guy Madden, especially early on, the minimalist sets. I love seeing any behind-the-scenes things for any of Guy Madden's films. They are sets that I would love to walk around and just kind of look to see how things are made and put together because there's a sort of ramshackle quality. The making of for the center of the world, I love, because you see how so many things are just pieces of cardboard put up that when you show shine the light from behind, it's this big looming shadow figure in the background that you would never guess. I really think a lot about Isabella Rossellini's office where you have like the big fans in the background and the sort of mock-up beer bottles kind of going by as if they're on a conveyor belt. I just think to myself, like, I would love to know how they're doing that. Is it literally people just moving like paper along? So anyways, that's where I wanted to start because that's always something with Guy Madden that I'm super excited for. Yeah, it has a real, um, it's a lush aesthetic, but at the same time, you do feel like it's a lot of tricks. It's a lot of um, lighting or shadow. Um, one of the things that really struck me was the streetcar and wondering yeah. how, what's the scale of that streetcar that's going by? Because it looks is it, it looks like like it might be on a buggy or something. And then they, then they cut to a different scene where they're climbing in through the top and that could be anything else. But yeah, it seems like a lot of straight stage trickery more than anything. I want to share a story about the streetcar. Because I clearly remember the first time I saw this film, I was still living in Toronto and I probably rented this from Suspect Video or something. And I guess my brain didn't click right away. It wasn't a long time, but it took a bit for me watching the film. I'm like, are those like weird submarines or something like that? And then it dawned on me like, oh, of course, it's because the snow is so high on each side. You're only seeing the top of it. And I just shook my head. I'm like, I can't believe it took me that long. To figure this out and then you look in the background and all the telephone poles are at eye level right because the snow is so high guy madden has said that with that set design idea it saved tons of money because they only have to do the top four of the houses <laughs> inside the sound stage right and a lot of that as you pointed out is real snow because it was so cold on set but i love that creativity especially having set design work myself on really low budget productions like I am way more impressed than something like a Guy Madden film than a big budget movie that has tons of money for special effects. 
to look well, yeah, good. If you can create something with with shadow and that kind of stuff, it's so much more impactful than than. Well, I mean, it, it's funny you say you're you're a production designer. My my wife, uh, her previous profession was uh, as a set designer, and the kind of the the joke she talks about is you you design these sets that are so detailed and like they're basically built so that the director can shoot any way they want, and then you watch the final product and they're everyone's shot in a close-up of the really soft focus. So you mm -hmm. see none of the detail, right? <laughs> like, like none of the set is seen because of the, uh, the depth of field of the shots and just that it's not, uh, it's not a concern of the directors. And I feel like with Guy Madden, the compositions of the shots are so important to him that the, the set design, the production design is, is as important basically as, as his actors. Um, so he's, He's very deliberately using techniques to to create these kind of tableaus, um, and it doesn't matter how he creates them either. Like I said, I don't know anything about the the background of how much of the stuff was built and how much was of it was cardboard put in front of a light. But it feels like it might be fifty fifty. <laughs> you never know with Madam. That's part of the fun yeah. and the adventure of it. Like when yeah. I saw that screening of Archangel, I call it four point watching. That instead of watching the center actors, I'm like, my eyes are quite often top right-hand side of the screen, left-hand side of the screen, bottom left, bottom right, and kind of going in and looking around. So I love doing that with Guy Madden's films, which is why I was so happy to see that projection of it, right? Because that experience is so good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's also, there's a playfulness to the set design, even though, you know, you can go into how he's using German expressionistic influences things like that, trying different lenses. Like I know for some of the shots he was talking about putting a 16 millimeter lens on a eight millimeter camera and just having it not fit properly, but that gave it a certain look. It really right. reminded me of recently when we were talking about Norman McLaren and how Norman McLaren really loved the tactile interaction with the actual film of the projects itself when he was working with that. I'm so glad that Guy Madden had the forethought for so many, even some of his smaller films, to have people filming him making the films on set. Because unlike other Canadian filmmakers, there is a lot of footage of Guy Madden working. And I would like to think that there's even more that we just haven't seen yet. But there's really great making of documentaries about Center of the World, Twilight of the Ice Nymphs has a really good one, even though that was a boondoggle of a production that maybe we'll tackle here at some point. But to see the pictures of him and the footage of him climbing over top of things, standing above actors underneath. We'll throw this out here now during one of the scenes where there's a scuffle. A lot of actors have a cinematography credit because different actors were holding different cameras at certain points to get different perspectives. But you also get a feeling because he has to work so quickly that he's not precious as either. He can't afford to be. So there's a lot of things on the fly. The end of the film, outside of Isabella Rossellini's scenes, he said the last 15 minutes was of the film was filmed in one day. Because there's a lot of quick cutting and stuff like that. So he's literally like, okay, you're not doing anything. Grab a camera, start shooting stuff. And we'll figure it out in editing because we literally do not have the space for one more day. So I lo love how there's like a notoriousness about him. But because of the nature of him as a filmmaker, he can't be precious, right? Because you always think about the filmmakers like a Kubrick or a Christopher Nolan that are absolute perfectionists on set and have to get things a certain way. So it is more of an impression of a guy mad in vision, what he can manage to get out before the art is literally taken away from them. Yeah, well, I mean, they they all, this one's no exception. They all seem to work as as these kind of like the 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 montage, the 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 editing is the the most important part of them. Um, like that's really where the it seems like the almost the bulk of the writing happens is in the montage. Um, they're really like these kind of collage films. Um, 
and 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 going back to the story with your friend and, and archangel being the first thing that he he views it is you know already the silent film aesthetic and and the kind of love of silent film i think is already a barrier and then when you put on that <laughs> mm-hmm. this kind of lack of fidelity for any sort of continuity and and just wild thoughts put in there because that's the wild thought that that occurred to him in the moment it can be really destabilizing as as a viewer but at the same time if you're on for the ride it's a it's an amazing ride and especially with the bizarre sometimes extremely dark humor you really yeah. get the impression when you see it projected around strangers people figuring out the film if they're supposed to laugh or not laugh my friend Colin thought that he was being pretty much completely earnest for the entire film right. and i'm like you have never read an interview with guy matter if you think that is the case right so i think that's another thing that people find a little bit off-putting not only the subject matter but how it's delivered is so absolutely bizarre sometimes yeah well they feel like they feel like they should be art films you know capital a art films and something that you would see and uh you know, in a museum or something as some as an installation. So I think that does pe- kind of put people on their back foot of if something seems odd, is this supposed to be funny? But I even find that I don't know, I don't know how much um, stuff you consume from the 20s and 30s. But going into those movies, ones that weren't straight comedies, it is kind of, it's a little bit like watching a Japanese film, actually, where like, if you're not quite on the on the the wavelength of the humor, you can miss it. And you do wonder what's exactly happening. Especially um, those, especially those pre-code ones. Yeah. You know, the yeah, screwball yeah. comedies and stuff like that, where people are just talking in a way that isn't normal, even though that fast screwball comedy dialogue is really yeah. great. At the same time, you're just like, what are they even saying yeah. at some points? Yeah. And sometimes they're, the characters are much more savvy than you assume they will be as characters from the 30s, yeah. right? Like, because everyone was so, you know, you assume everyone was more innocent the way your grandparents presented themselves to be. But at the same time, they're really, they're not. They're, they can be quite dirty films. It's just, it's all subtext. This didn't occur to me until now, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, around Christmas every single year, I go through a director watch project. Like I watch every single one of that director's films. And this year I decided to do John Waters. Mm-hmm. Like I'd seen most of John Waters films, but uh, it was nice. A lot of them I hadn't seen for a long time. So going back from the beginning, chronologically doing it, uh, you kind of look at the films a little bit differently. And I'm only about four or five into them now. But... There's some similarities between, especially early on, Waters and Madden a little bit. They have these different visions, very unique senses of humor, very on the fly with what you have around you, basically with your friends or who you can get when they start getting better name actors. But I didn't really put the two of that together. Now that I think about it, and again, because I'm watching John Waters and reading up on Madden, it just it wasn't until right now. But also... Uh, um a loyalty to this place where they're from as well. You have Winnipeg, you have Baltimore, and they're, they're these very unique places. Um, and, you know, places that people don't really think about in general. Um, yeah. And they they have this kind of like love-hate relationship with it and want to put it on the screen. I think it's, I think it's actually an interesting um, comparison, especially because one of the things that people say about Guy Madden is that, you know, there's a certain camp to his, to his films. Um, and certainly that's the case for, um, for John Waters as well. So it, it would be interesting to see, to kind of watch their filmographies together and see how they might be in dialogue. All right. So just a couple of other notes. The next one that I have on my list is the theme of sadness and how this film talks about sadness and how we think about sadness and portray sadness in films. Um, I, I think it's, interesting that um 
the guy Madden wants to present Winnipeg as the as essentially what did, what does he call it the it's essentially the saddest place in the world right is that's what it's it's be presented as in the in this film yeah uh, something along the lines that per capita is the saddest person or something <laughs> yeah. like that yeah so I find that fascinating in terms of uh you know growing up in Canada and and you know I I grew up in a, a town called Peterborough which is not Winnipeg um yeah. but you know it's snowy it's cold it's all those things and it's you know it feels every time there's a recession it feels it so you know there's something to be said for that i kind of like the idea of the inspiration being how as i brought up with the inspiration for madden the way that sadness can be used as marketing mm-hmm. how sadness can be used as this sort of way of evoking pity or sympathy from someone mark mckinney's character outright says that he does not believe in sadness he believes that sadness is a manipulative tool and obviously on the other side you have his brother who's the complete opposite he is defined by his sorrow and his sadness because his wife is gone his child is dead he literally walks around with an infant's heart in a jar pickled by his own tears around his neck (laughs) and i think that's a really interesting idea and it kind of made me think about like I, I do think things like sadness and depression can be weaponized, even by an individual, their own sadness and depression, and use that as a tool for manipulating others. And I think this movie really comes at a lot of different angles with that. Like it comes with it from the personal point of view with the brother character, but then it also comes to from the corporate point of view with Isabella Rossellini, right? The idea that she's going to play upon the fact that this is the saddest place in the world, and therefore they are the perfect ones to choose the saddest music. Because Prohibition is going to be ending soon in the States. So she wants to use sadness to market her beer better for when Mm -hmm. that border opens up so she can get as much of the market as possible. And it's a movie before doing research, you kind of take on the surface, right? But the more that I read up on it and the different sources, the more my brain started to go about those things and those sort of topics. And that is really much more of a canny, I don't want to say smart, but a canny, cunning movie than you initially think of when either you read the tin or you first initially watch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So tell me more about about the about your research then in terms of what you came up with. Did you come up with like historical instances in which corporations are um, acting like vultures around this this concept of stuff? I mean, I guess there's the pharmaceutical companies. Well, <laughs> you could also t- you can take like a lot of environmentalism. Like we both yeah. remember in the 90s yeah. when a lot of companies would slap green onto a product to try to get people to buy it more that's more out of guilt for people than sadness well i guess it could be sadness about the environment during the 80s there were a lot of instances we all when everybody was talking about the famine in ethiopia yeah trying to drum up business that way going back i mean i remember not in research for this but examples of shucksters during the irish potato famine you know, collecting funds and completely pocketing to it. They would go to Irish neighborhoods and places like Boston and New York canvassing for, you know, the great famine that's been going on. And people sometimes who didn't have the money would give money towards that. Oh, that's fascinating. So, and you always hear about religious organizations, not all my, my sister, the minister, I don't know if you would listen to this one, but you know, a lot of churches do a lot of great works, but we also hear about a lot of scams out there. Right. Mm-hmm. So, this movie doesn't talk about those ideas and say them outright, but once you know what was going through Madden's mind, you can see those elements throughout the entire film, especially with Rossellini's character and the beer company and why this saddest music, like it is for a capitalist reason, but using the idea of sadness, right? It's a marketing shtick. And then that, again, is juxtaposed with the people who are actually sad to the point, spoiler, we're not doing a plot beat by beat thing, 
Yeah. But, you know, by the end of the film, when Mark McKinney feels sadness seemingly for the first time, and it's not just because he was just stabbed and is going to burn to death. It I read it as he realizes the destruction that he has basically wrought by doing this and getting back into cahoots with Isabella Rossellini because of denial or greed or whatever just didn't allow that in. So that sadness as catharsis, right? Sorrow as catharsis, losing somebody important to you and re-examining your whole life based upon that, even if in Mark McKinney's case, it's at the end of his life mm -hmm. because of it. Anyways, it is called the saddest music in the world. I just figured I would spitball and kind of talk about that. Well, can we can we talk about the saddest music in the world, meaning uh, the the scene in which we see the various uh, incarnations of the saddest music in the world? We have all these um, groups playing the music that they brought to this um, this contest. Yes, musicians from quote all over the world. They were all from <laughs> Winnipeg, actually. And Madden, yes. when he put out a casting call, was very shocked how many amazing talented musicians that they had that played music from all over the world in winnipeg uh again with saving on the budget apparently a lot of the musicians clothes are their own clothes which I well that was, was my question funny. that was my question to you uh because we talk about him being a, a fabulous and and saying things like that that aren't patently untrue um do you think that that assertion is true because it, it, it seems to me that all of these cultures are presented in like their most essential form you know, and most um, stereotypical. Yeah. Like he does yeah. talk about when they misspeak about like where certain people are from yeah. or using proper terms. He is making a direct reference to films of the thirties that had no care for geography whatsoever. Like that's completely intentional yeah. in terms of whether that's a fabulous statement. And thank you again for coming up with fabulous because that, <laughs> that really encapsulates. Well, it could be, it very much could be. I don't know if I had my traditional Mexican mariachi garb, if I'd want to go down a slide into a big vat of beer. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you know it is a budget of 3.5 million was it yeah that, i lost yes, that page of my you, notes yeah so i mean there is some money and they do have a costume designer so it could be a fib but it's something that comes up a lot as yeah. well i think even mark mckinney comments on it on the commentary because that commentary is neat because this guy matted and mark mckinney so yeah. it's interesting hearing the two of them talking together but it could be yeah, it seems to me. I'm glad we were on the the same page too. It seems to me that he's represent. He's very much doing a, a, a representation of um, kind of 30s tropes of what other cultures look like, rather than you know the film itself being like inherently racist or essentialist or anything like that. I feel like it really is a send up of what you would see in a film like, um, well, like I mean, for instance, the villagers in King Kong. Um, yeah like that like that's kind of the example that comes to my mind first and foremost and and you know some of the stuff he presents in this is not that different from from that 1933 film but, th but that is that's one of the things in the research that that kind of struck me as like mm, it doesn't seem like it'd be their own clothes because these really do seem to be like 19 like early 20th century stereotypes of what these cultures are yeah again it's one of those things that until you start talking to somebody about it you don't really think about too much unless somebody brings it up because you're absolutely right. The, the uh, musicians that are from Siam, I don't know if they would necessarily have grass skirts hanging up in their <laughs> closets at home. So that's a very good point. And then there's ones from Cameroon that I think they're essentially just wearing loincloths. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And to say there, you see all the chalkboards, a lot of different countries, but generally the ones that we see performing are from Siam, Mexico. We have David Fox representing Canada. Uh, yeah. Cameroon, Spain, 
versus Scotland in one scene. Right. And also some Indian musicians who, after they are out of the competition, Mark McKinney convinces to play, I because this is a term in the film, why I will say it, but to play Eskimos is what right. he says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, David Fox's song, too, made me laugh. Um, essentially, he, he begins by knocking over the piano and talking about Vimy Ridge. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and as someone who has worked, uh, you know, the better part of ten years in can working in like Canadian history, it it made me laugh. This this idea of like, what's his ass music in the world? I'm gonna talk to you about Vimy Ridge. <laughs> well, but that's the other part of sadness, right? PTSD, yeah. which was yeah. so completely in for the time period, you know, the era of shell shock. Yeah, is was so discounted. Right. Like yeah. you just want to address. So it's interesting that that aspect comes in too. the sort of long term trauma of an entire generation that went to war and like World War Two had to go home and basically shut up about it and move on with your life. Mm -hmm. In terms of the competition, I'll just really quickly note, I, I looked around. I don't think the score and which which I love the score or the soundtrack is available to stream anywhere. There was a CD released at some point, which I never owned. If anybody listening out there knows if there's any place to listen to this online, definitely fire me off an email because I really enjoyed it. And I would love to hear, especially the international music when it's being played on kind of separate tracks, just mm. to see, because it's a little bit unclear. We noted the score, but how many of the songs the musicians brought in themselves, like how many of them were written for them or how many of them did they just play? Oh, I like think the that's kind of an interesting are... thing. Yeah. Like the idea is that they may be like, you know, Ukrainian, um, like a Ukrainian band and they would play what they would normally play. That's what that's what you're thinking may have been some of the music, the way the music was chosen. I'm not sure. It's just something that crossed my mind yeah, while yeah, I was yeah. watching. Yeah. Now, I really quickly wanted to go into the performances. Mm -hmm. They're all really solid. I've read interviews about other Madden films that like a lot of directors with kind of heightened or nuanced dialogue, it can be a tough thing to wrap your head around. Although it does seem Mark McKinney was born to deliver Guy Madden dialogue, like the way he delivers his lines and other things like in the kids and stuff like that just seemed to match up perfectly. Like Mark McKinney barely had to change his stick at all to fit into a Guy Madden world. Absolutely. It feels like it, it feels like it could fit right into an episode of Kids in the Hall in terms of uh, his performance and not in, in, in a complimentary way, not in a, not, to, not to denigrate it. Well, we talked about Saturday Night Live, Live and how they didn't know how to use him. And like I said, he spent years just popping up in these shitty comedies and these sort of bit parts that it could be like, hey, we like Mark. Let's get him in to do this walk on or play the concierge at a hotel or something like that for one scene. Right. And you can say that about all of the kids. Like how brilliant yeah. is Kevin McDonald? But it's so hard to get him to fit into the right yeah. project, because as you did looking up in the history of brain candy, he's not really a leading man type. Mm -hmm. So. For pretty much all of them outside of Dave Foley, there was that problem, right? So it's interesting that, you know, McKinney has this sort of, not a dry spell, but a fallow period, shall we say, of trying to figure out what to do. And hey, it's Guy Madden that actually figured it out. And it's really sad. I don't think they work together again. Even at the commentary, they were like, oh, yeah, we should definitely work together sometime soon. And as far as I know, they've never worked together again. Things get complicated, obviously, in terms of scheduling and projects and stuff like that. But just noting... Uh, particularly when I rewatched it, the one thing that I thought was really interesting is that certain pairings are really, really interesting and I think really sing well with each other. And that would be Mark McKinney and Isabella Rossellini. Their two presences and personality on screen, I think, are really, really interesting. 
the way that they play off each other and because they're both bringing so much of their vibe to the role mm -hmm. seeing mark mckinney and isabella rossellini's energy just kind of bounce up against each other and doing this material i think is really cool and the other one i wanted to point out is david fox as Fyodor Kent and Ross McMillian as Roderick Kent. I think their scenes together, they have a really good banter and pitter patter. And I, I gather and Guy Madden touched upon this really quickly that they could go through their scenes really, really quickly because they both had so much theater experience and had worked together so well that they just immediately had a rapport. And you can really see that on screen as well. I love any single time that it's just the two of those mm -hmm. on screen together, I think is really, really interesting. I think uh, going back to to Isabella Rossellini too, um, the thing that kind of almost floored me actually in, in rewatching this because it had been a few years is her performance in this um, do you know fits with the aesthetic and and what I mean by that is that she's giving a silent film performance in a, in a really nuanced uh, smart way like if you take a film like um, like The Artist. Um, they, they're, uh, do you remember the artist, the one that won the, yeah. the Academy Award? Yeah. So those are those are silent film performances that are made by people that like have a, a kind of an, a little bit of an understanding of silent film, but really it's kind of these broad stroke. This is what silent film acting is. Whereas hers is someone who's like steeped in film culture that understands that you can have a performance like uh, the the Passion of Joan of Arc. You can have a performance like uh, mm -hmm. the that actress whose name is escaping me right now. Is it Maria Falconetti? Yes, that's it. Yeah. Um, that is just so um, human and naturalistic, but at the same time being um, you know, melodramatic and and Rosaline just hits it perfectly. She's she's just it's honestly the best modern silent film acting I've seen uh, anyone do. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the passion of Joan of Arc because when you, when the topic comes up as what you think is one of the best acting performances of all time. Falconetti in that film is always one of the first go-tos that is still seared in my brain because I was lucky enough when I lived in Toronto to see a projection of it. Those oh close-ups of her face and her eyes in that film just is burned into my brain. Yeah. It will never, ever leave. Yeah, and she's someone who, I I, I don't think I'm wrong in saying this too, I think that was her only on-screen performance. I think that's I believe you're correct. Done. Yeah. Yeah, I believe <laughs> you're correct. Amazing. It's been a long time since I've seen it and looked into it, but I believe you're right. I believe but, you're right with that. Yeah, Rosalini, her her performance in this is just perfect, and I under I understand why she and Madden worked together again after because she just seems like the perfect vessel for for his work. On the commentary, he noted the scene with the small bathtub that Mark McKinney throws her into, yeah. and her wig comes off. He noted that one thing that he really liked about working with Isabella is that she's not afraid to get ugly. He's like, here's a woman who made so much money as a fashion model, but is so not precious at all about how she comes across on film. Look at Blue Velvet. When we well, that was one see of... her character, you know, that is one of the rawest, most, no pun intended, but bare raw scenes ever committed to film. Yeah, that was one of the things that Ebert found really offensive about that movie, wasn't it? Was the way that Isabella Rossellini was treated in it. Like he gave that a negative yeah. review because of the way Isabella Rossellini was treated in that film. And I feel like we should just throw it there because she's kind of being overshadowed in our conversation. Maria de Medeiros. Mm -hmm. I, I think she's really good in the role. I didn't know until research how unhappy she was on set, apparently. But <laughs> I could definitely see why they would cast her for that role. There are so many other 
almost more heightened performances, she kind of gets pushed to the side a little bit, but I could totally see why when they wrote that role, they had her in mind. And again, going back to Luke Montpellier and the cinematography, like absolutely beautiful. She looks like a silent starlet in certain shots, right? You could almost do a transition from an early Mary Pickford film to her and some of the close-ups that they give her. Like Luke Montpellier's camera like absolutely loves her face. Yeah, she has the tiny features but big eyes. She yeah, she feels like she's from a, a totally another time. And she's great in this movie. Like I know she I don't know if you um listen to to other film podcasts, but she's become kind of synonymous with bad acting in terms of um there's a a category on the rewatchables named after her performance in uh in pulp fiction. Everybody um, picks on her for pulp fiction. Yeah. <laughs> like that really ticks me off. But she's she's fantastic at this. And I think when you're doing this kind of silent film aesthetic too, I think casting is is uh, is one of the big things, right? Because because you want to f- find these actors that feel almost timeless in their in their faces, which Jugai Madden generally has a really great track record of doing, right? So yeah, I think I mean just in terms of reading about this film, one of the things that struck me that didn't strike me in the watching was the fact that. I, I don't think I'm overstating this, but Ace in the Hole was uh, was a um, inspiration. The Billy Wilder film with Kirk Douglas was an inspiration for this film. And that kind of like hero, not hero, anti-hero down on his luck, trying to get back into the good graces of the profession that he wants to be in and basically exploiting the situation he finds. And and knowing that Ace in the Hole was, a, was an inspiration for the Mark McKinney character, I, I feel like it gave me so much more... Um, so much more to like bite into in terms of in terms of the story kind of looking at it with that kind of film history background i really uh enjoyed it on the rewatch with that knowledge that's really cool i i did not come across that now to be clear it was an influence on madden or mark mckinney in his performance or in the writing so it was it was guy madden trying to do an ace in the hole kind of story interesting um, so yeah, yeah. And and knowing that and now knowing that, I'm sure for you too, it's like, oh yeah, I can completely see it. And and it it's it feels like it's within this this genre because this film can sometimes feel like it's not within any kind of like uh context of other films other than its aesthetic, but it, it feels very much its own thing. But then kind of seeing the way Adam's influence is even inform even his screenwriting, I find I find interesting as just someone who's you know who studied film and, and, and loves film history as a, just as a a pastime. Um, I really enjoyed knowing that little bit about it. That is really, really cool. Yeah. I'll definitely keep an eye out for that. So I like to mention to people where films are available. This is actually, you can see it for free on Tubi, which I think was really nice. I have my old DVD copy from back in the day. So that was cool. I could pull it out and dust it off, but it is available right now. So we do like to mention that. What are the extras like on that DVD? Uh, there is a making of featurette and then the commentary. Oh, nice. Okay. You know, it's an early 2000s DVD. It's not quite old enough to have menu titles yeah. as a feature, like on the back of the DVD box where they say interactive menus, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's something that I appreciate being there, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, as someone who likes context and and likes the the history of how something's made, I always like that. That's kind of why I still keep my physical media is actually for the the paratextual stuff, not so much the film itself. Because you know there are better versions of most of the films uh, out there if I don't own them on Blu-ray. 
yeah, a move recently I had to pare down on a lot of things. So unfortunately, I did have to get rid of a lot of DVDs. Basically, I went through and I'm like, if I can't foresee myself watching this in the future for however many years, I might as well just get rid of it and make sure it gets to a good home. But anything that was Canadian or Canadian adjacent, like a Canadian director in the States or a Canadian actor in a film, I kept every single one of those because you never know where those commentaries are going to pop up or where they can be useful. And I have to say this again, I didn't use it as a resource for for this film but whenever people put up film commentaries on youtube and places like that that you can access that i've used before in the past thank you so much i keep yeah. saying this i should go through my commentaries and see if i could do that and get them available out there because i have some pretty neat ones from some movies that the physical media wasn't exactly popular at the time so oh, yeah say. i mean that that certainly helped me with uh cronenberg i was able to access the um videodrome was one of the ones i don't own a physical copy of and someone had uploaded the the commentary which is it's david talking about david and i think um the cinematographer talking about the film which is just you know invaluable when you're trying to find this kind of background information i'm pretty sure i did the same thing i know video time was on the criterion channel at the time but i think that wasn't one of the ones because sometimes they put commentaries up there but i do have to say because i did so much research like the books that you cited for the kids of the hall episodes i i I'd independently read both of those yeah yeah, yeah. And for Cronenberg, obviously, I have a lot of material and there would be facts or points that come up that'd be like, I wonder if we got that here or I wonder if we got that here. Right. So it's interesting talking oh. to you about this stuff. Right. Because we both have research like the exact same topics that yeah. I was like, I remember reading that on Cronenberg on Cronenberg. Yeah. Or I remember that coming <laughs> up in the film commentary for Dead Ringers. So uh, and we on the show like to cite our sources as well. These are not sources that we have not brought up in the past. Yeah. All right, shall we go into the after? I know you have kids doing things, and I don't want to keep you for too much longer. You never know sure, going sure. into these how long they're going to last, right? So Yeah, it's no worries. All right, so we'll really quickly go into the after part here. Guy Madden had said that when he was talking to producers and stuff like that, they encouraged him to make a film that was more approachable than a standard fare, especially getting a star that they had sought out at the beginning in terms of Isabella Rossellini. However, it was overall a disappointment making $855,000 off of the $3.5 million budget. But if there was any pressure on Madden, number one, we're talking about Guy Madden here, right? This, at this date, and still is his highest grossing film. I had to double check because the only one I could think of that might have gotten close is my Winnipeg. But even my Winnipeg only made about $500,000 in the right. theater. But this was the last time that Madden took like a big swing in terms of getting like major stars in this film. The films, much like Cronenberg had to do after films like M. Butterfly, that got really big and out of control and they underperform. He always has to scale back and bring it back down. So that's kind of what he did. It is to note, though, that it did win the Genie for costume design, editing and music at that year's Genie Awards, which I think is well-deserved. And Madden was nominated for Best Director. Yeah, that's about it on my end. It was really good. This this didn't spin out of control in terms of research, like some other recent ones where I go into the National Film Board and really kind of deep dives into subjects. It was really, it was fun. You know, there well, wasn't a lot doing, of pressure yeah. with this one. It was really good to just kind of chill out. And like I said, with the Archangel screening, just kind of get back into Guy Madden. Because other than when like some of his short films pop up on the Criterion channel or something like that, he's not somebody that I've really revisited a lot over the last few years, unless one of his films come up here for research so between this and the archangel experience it was really fun really getting back into guy madden 
So thank you. It was a really excuse to do that. So thank you so much for reaching out and getting in contact with us. Oh, thanks. Well, thanks for having me on. And I appreciate talking about Guy as well. He's, he's, you know, one of my favorite Canadian filmmakers. And I, you know, I know he makes stuff all the time, but I wish he, he made stuff on this scale. Um, you know, when I watch something like um, 20th Century, if I don't know if you've seen that film, the Matthew Rankin film. Um, I, I love that movie. And I would yeah. love to do on this show is just finding the right guest. Yeah. That's somebody that uh, would be able to, I say that all the time. There's so many films I want to do on this show that I always joke that last night is one of my favorite films ever made the Don McKellar film. And the fact that yeah. it took me to episode 50 or 51 right. to do that. And it's one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah. I appreciate just, people sending in recommendations, but saying, why haven't you gotten around to this film yet in emails? <laughs> I'm always like, it, it takes a long time, man, for some of these. Yeah, of course. And you, and you also have to, I mean, it's, it's the same for, for uh, my show is that you like, if you're going to invest something, you kind of like want to, you want to kind of put your interest somewhere, but then you have to kind of go somewhere different for the next one, and then somewhere different for the next one. You don't want to kind of stay on the same uh, wavelength for, for too long. But yeah, I was going to say with 20th Century, you kind of, you see now the influence of Guy Madden on younger filmmakers, but he's still, he's not an old guy. Um, and, and I, you know, I just wish he was, he was making features uh, at this scale right now. Not to compare to John Waters, but I, again, but John Waters, you know, like stop after a dirty shame, just stop making films because one, it was tough to budget. And two, yeah. he's like, I don't have the energy, especially with these low budget films where I'm responsible for so much. It's not worth yeah. the energy yeah, in this current market. So oh, maybe I that's something to do with Guy Madden because his, what was it? The Green Fog? Yeah. Is that his last film came out in like yeah. 2017? But it's like you brought up that really cool art project that I wish I could have seen the seance one. Yeah, seances. That's that that with art shows and he's teaching and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah so you you're can right. come he watch him busy. film and all that stuff. And he's doing it at the National Film Board. He's doing it at the Centre Pompidou. He's doing it here. He's doing it there. Like maybe that's the 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 future for him. But um, but yeah, when you talk about John Waters and um, hasn't made a film in what was Dirty Shame is like was that fifteen years ago? The the market has changed so much since then so if he's yeah. having it tough then like i can't imagine what this this streaming world and this lack of um you know theater windows and all that like it's just i mean for guys like you and me it's really depressing i think to think like film is not the dominant uh cultural form anymore and <laughs> and but like and, many other art forms where that can happen you know the yeah. passionate people Obviously, it's not always going to happen, but you are going to have certain people that are passionate enough to get the stuff made regardless. Yeah. There's yeah. always going to be good art being made. You just need to put forth the effort to find it. Yeah. Or just to be aware. It always happens. Whenever people get down about the state of movies and how blockbusters have taken over, you know, always my favorite movies of the year are these sort of underperforming ones. And it's because I'm vigilant. I have lists that I keep in my phone when I come across an article. Yeah, You know, and it's like, oh, the Angry Beaver seems really interesting. I'm going to put that down into my phone and periodically just see if they've been released anywhere. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks again for being here. Again, north of normal, people are always welcome back. So don't be a stranger on that if it tickles your fancy. Uh, where can people find your show? Uh, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, you can find Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North and Among Equals. And I also, if I can do a little plug, because I said I'm into silent film, uh, I also uh, put out a book this year 
uh, oh about wow the, about the life and um about the life and films of Buster Keaton. It's a graphic novel biography of Buster Keaton. So uh, if you're looking for a gift for anyone who loves films, please uh, look up. Uh, it's called Buster, A Life in Pictures. It's uh, written by me and drawn by a Toronto artist named uh, Matthew Tavares. Interesting. And where can people find that? Uh, you can just find it on, on Amazon here. You want to see a copy of it? <laughs> yeah, sure. I think I might have come across this just completely separately. This will be useless for your uh, podcast listening group, but there's the book. I have seen that online completely yeah. separately from our conversations. That's really crazy. That's really, really yes. interesting. Because so I love was, Buster uh... Keaton as well. Like, I'm a Buster Keaton guy. Out of the Harry Lloyd Chaplin, Buster Keaton trio, I'm a he, Buster Keaton guy. He's your guy? Yeah, he's my guy yeah. too. <laughs> All so right. I hope I hope people will check out the book. Uh, it's, it's available where books are sold. So please, um, yeah, thank you again. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, we, we could probably prattle on forever, but for yeah. both your time frame and what you have to do, and also for our listeners, we'll pull the plug right here. Okay, so sure. thanks again. That's good. Thank All you. All right, North of Normal is a production of Eldritch Creative that can be found on Facebook at Eldritch Creative and Instagram at Eldritch.Creative. North of Normal can be found on Facebook at North of Normal Pod and Instagram at North of Normal Pod. Intro and outro music is by Dad versus Son out of Hamilton, Ontario. That's it for now. See you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.